Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Welcome to the Al Franken Podcast. We got a great one today for a change. Uh, Harry Reid. Former majority leader, also former minority leader in uh, the Senate. I loved Harry. Uh, went to uh, his home in uh, Henderson, Nevada. This is about a half hour from Las Vegas airport. And I hadn't seen uh, Harry in a while. Harry is the strongest guy. He grew up in Searchlight, Nevada. It was a mining town until they ran out of gold. And they ran out of gold around the turn of the century, uh, of the 20th century. And then it got very rough. His house had, uh, it had running water, but no hot running water. Now, what happened in uh, Searchlight is that it, w- when the mining went away, the economy of Searchlight ran on prostitution. They had, at, at the height, 11 brothels. And Harry learned to swim in uh, the swimming pool of a brothel. He talks about that in this. And so I'm, yeah, I just think it's an interesting story. If you hear it repeated by Harry, you'll, you'll appreciate that. He was a boxer. He was a capital cop. And Harry had, he appreciated my, my sense of humor maybe more than any of my colleagues. It's a certain kind of thing. Like once, I remember Bernie Sanders, people forget that as a senator, he also does a job in the Senate. So he was like, uh, I think at this time, the ranking member of a Senate appropriations subcommittee. And he came to in the caucus lunch with what the Republicans were proposing. And he comes, he says, okay, they they want to uh, cut food stamps, but they also want to cut taxes for the rich. What kind of religion does that? What kind of religion is for that? And I just said, Southern Baptists. And Harry, <laughs> Harry's the only one in the caucus who laughed. He just laughed. And that's one of the reasons I love Harry. And so you're going to enjoy this. Now, he's, he's got cancer. He's got uh, uh, pancreatic cancer. He's had it for quite a while. He had chemotherapy the day before uh, this, this interview. And I said, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do that. And, and they said, no, 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 he'll be fine. He'll be fine. Harry's great. And uh, somebody's doing some, what is it, a trial kind of thing uh, on some new uh, pancreatic cancer cure. So he's optimistic. And uh, I think you'll enjoy Harry. I think you really will. So uh, here we go. It's uh, Harry Reid. Okay, Harry. The good thing we were doing here, I don't have to look at your face. <laughs> right away, right away. That's one of the things I liked about you, Harry. I gave you a so, bad time, didn't I? You did. You did. The first time I spoke in caucus, and again, this is lunch. All the Democrats in our caucus are there. And early on, you asked me to speak, uh, which I think is what you do with new members. And I was kind of alone as a new member because I was seated so late because of the recount. And you said, uh, Al, would you get up and speak? And I did. And I got a standing ovation. I know how to speak, right? So I go back to my table and Diane Feinstein, who was seated next to me, says, you know, when you first came here, I thought you were going to be stupid. <laughs> and I said, why? <laughs> and she said, because you were a comedian. And I said, well, you know, actually, comedians are usually 
pretty smart. And she goes, I don't think so. <laughs> Usually what they're talking about is pretty stupid. And I said, no. That's a, and then I gave up, right? Al, I do remember that first caucus. I remember the standing ovation. You it do? Was, it, yes, and it wasn't a phony standing ovation. There was a lot of sentiment, very positive. The reason for that is everyone watched that election, which you had lost on election night. I was behind on election and, night. I had not and, lost and, and, and Harry. And everyone followed that so closely, the ups and the downs, and you won it in the courts. What you did was superb. You, you held up so well. You never lost your cool. And so that day, when I called upon you to say something, you were stunningly articulate, and I remember that, always will remember. That was really nice. Wow. Thanks for remembering that. I, I didn't, <laughs> I thought I remembered that. But, you know, during, during that recount, I've always said this. I was basically, my team said, don't do anything. I raised money. I, I, I called, you know, several hours a day to raise a lot of money. cost a lot of money. Mark Elias is the lawyer. His whole team costs money. At, t at one point, we had like 10 lawyers doing stuff because they were doing research and, and they were all connected during the trial and some were writing briefs and some because we were, had to go to various courts at certain times. At one point, I had 10 lawyers on my payroll and Coleman's guy, his guy wasn't very good, I didn't think, and he was older. And he would misplace a piece of paper that he was going to read from. And I'd be going, hurry up, hurry up, I'm paying. Because it was carried yeah. on TV. But that was really an expensive proposition. But that's mainly what I did. But what I really did was just stay out of it in terms of I didn't say anything about it. And somebody came up to me at the grocery store. And I was picking out some avocados. And they said, uh, you were just handling this great. And I said to her, I said, you see this avocado? It's handling it just as well as I am because I was doing nothing. <laughs> One of the things I remember that was so hilarious, you wrote a book and you were sued for defamation. And the lawyer called you to tell you that you won. What was your response to that? A chimp could have won it. <laughs> Yeah, we, we, we went in court, and it was quite a um, well-known lawyer, and he just called me up. They, they told me, again, that was a different thing. That was Fox suit. Yeah. It was uh, lies and lying liars who tell them a fair and balanced look at the right. They try to restrain the publishing of the book, which is really not American. And also— All they did is sell more books. Oh my God! It was a bad, it was a, such a gift for them to sue me. It was so stupid of them to do it. They literally were laughed out of court. I mean, they're, this federal court was stuffed with people who wanted to see this, and uh, it was so stupid. It was because Bill O'Reilly didn't like the book, and I'd kind of embarrassed him at a book event a couple of months before, and it was uh, Floyd Abrams. The First Amendment oh, lawyer who... Famous, famous. Yeah, and he had won the, the Pentagon Papers, I think. Yeah, he won, like... That's right. And so he be, he was my lawyer in this, because it was kind of the same deal as freedom to publish something. And, yeah, Floyd called me up and said, you won. And I said, Floyd, a chimp could have won this game. Because <laughs> they had nothing. They had nothing. But let's talk about you, because I'm I'm on my podcast a lot. <laughs> You're you're a tough guy, and and I just I don't want to cover your biography like this is your life. I just want to just establish a few things for the listener. One, uh, searchlight, where you grew up, not a, not a town doing well economically, right? Al, I never realized till much later that we were poor. My uh, niece was going through my. Uh, late brother's papers. He died as a young man. And uh, there were some pictures there of where I lived in Searchlight. And she sent me one of those pictures. I'm standing in front of the house. 
And I said to myself, I can't imagine. I lived in that thing. It had a, some kind of a, a wooden step to get up uh, into the house. And I thought, man, that's not too good. It, it had no hot water. Yeah, no, or no inside toilet. No toilet. And it was, uh, it was okay at the time, I guess. But I realized when I looked at that picture, man, I can't imagine I lived there. So Searchlight was a, a town that had seen its better days. Gold was discovered there in 1898. The reason it was named Searchlight is because uh, the prospector that found the gold came back to his partner and said, I, we, I've got, we've got some good ore here. And the man looked at him and said, if, you, if that's ore, you'll need a searchlight to find it. But the man that discovered it, he was right. And so Searchlight, for about 10 or 12 years, was a big, it was really a thriving place. Had a Railroad was brought in, newspaper. They had electricity in some parts of the town. But it sounds like it was going downhill then for at least 20 years before you were born. Oh, yeah. yeah. When I grew up there, and I wrote a book about Searchlight, and what I said there is these mining towns, when they're booming, they've got engineers, they've got lawyers, they've got doctors, they've got a lot of stuff. But as soon as the town goes under economically, they all leave. Sure. And the people that stay have no place else to go. And that's where I grew up. The one thing that kept the town thriving when I was there is prostitution. Uh, there was illegal prostitution went on there for, oh, 15 or 20 years at least. And uh, even though it was a town of 200 people probably at the time, on payday at the military basis, that place was like, uh, Fremont Street in Las Vegas. It was really booming. And they had as many as 13 brothels there at one time. I just watched this uh, Ken Burns show on public radio about country music. Yeah, I've been watching that. It's great. Uh, Ernest Tubb came there. He was talked about in that that documentary. Uh, we had people came and big had dances. It was a, really a thriving place. And the one thing that I know there, I don't hold many records in the Senate, but I hold one record for sure. I'm the only senator in history to learn to swim in a whorehouse swimming pool. Right. Wasn't there like a day off at the yeah, what, 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 Sunday? Or Will, no, Willie, Willie Martello, the uh, owner of the establishment where we had referred to at the time as the girls. That's what how they were referred to, the prostitutes. And about three hours or four hours Saturday afternoons, they wouldn't be around. And we got to use their swimming pool. Ah. And that's where I learned to swim. There's no place else to swim in Searchlight. Well, um, <laughs> the, yeah, I think so you're right. So that's my I think story you're, of Searchlight. The, yes. I, One teacher taught all eight grades. And everyone should feel good about this interview. I graduated in the top third of my class. We had a class of six or eight. Okay, so top two or three. Oh, yeah. You're salutorian. Is that that's a, true. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because in 2014, when I ran for re-election, my opponent tried to say that he had come from humble background. And he, <laughs> what he said was his father was the first in his family to graduate from college. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought like, wow, is that a reach? Your father was the first in your family to graduate from college. I mean, this guy was rich, and he went to private school and tried it out. He tried it that out. <laughs> and I thought, like, Jesus, man, what a tin ear. You graduate from high school? No, no. They had no high school. Oh, at school? Yeah, I graduated from <laughs> elementary school. That's right. And then I had to go. Oh, that's right. You went to Anderson? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Here? Yes. That's right. But that's Henderson right. at the time wasn't this big, but I would uh, live with people. Um, Who'd you live with? Oh, I lived with a couple of aunts and, you know, I boarded with them. They were always nice to me, but I know my parents were supposed to pay them something to have me live there. And I think they were late on few payments. Where do you go to college? I went to two, several places. I went to... Oh, you went to like... Uh, yeah, I went, I went to... Uh, Utah, right? Uh, yeah, I went to... University of Southern Utah, that's what it's named now. And when I went, it was a junior college, we called them now a community college. 
And I went there to be an athlete. Played football and baseball in high school. And I thought I was really pretty good. I went at a scholarship to go there to do that. But I got hurt fairly quickly. Um, by then, it was very apparent to me after having practiced for weeks at a time that I wasn't fast enough, big enough, or good enough to be the athlete of my dreams. So that ended my athletic career. I, I did, though, however, take up fighting. You were a boxer. Yeah. I fought for a couple of years, yes. I fought in Utah. I fought in Nevada. fought in Arizona. Anyone who saw you work in the Senate, that was not a big surprise that you were a boxer. And after college, you went to... Well, let me, let me stop here because you went to Utah because you're a Mormon, right? No, I wasn't a Mormon. You weren't a Mormon then? No, no. Because I, I assumed that you had been born Mormon. No, I was 19. So, so you started in college adopting yes. this religion. I don't know if it was my junior or senior year, probably my junior year of college. Most of the other students were Mormon. Would that be fair to say? Uh, Utah yes. State? It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. It's different now. It's not as heavily Mormon. It's, it's a big university now, very large. I'm sure, no question about it, majority were members of the Mormon church. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Let's get to you as leader because uh, that's how I knew you. I, I didn't know you as anything other than that. And, and, and if you want to go back to how you got there in the Senate, but my experience of you was that you were tough. The boxer thing came up all the time uh, as an analogy. Uh, but my experience with you was um, that you liked me, <laughs> that you partly liked me because I was funny, and I liked you because you were funny. Do you remember the time there was a joint session? It wasn't a State of the Union, but for some, uh, it was a joint session, and I was presiding over the Senate. They don't close the Senate down if it's not the State of the Union. And you said, as soon as the speech is over, get over there, get back, and preside over the Senate. So I had never had left at that point. So I get up from where I am, and I just kind of haul ass to get out of the chamber. And you're walking out, I guess, with the other leaders. So we're going through... A statuary hall, and statuary hall has this 
huge mass of press. And so there's just this din. And I say to you, I'm walking with you, I say, Harry, um, talk to me like I'm important. And you remember what you said? Probably something like, how could I? Because you're not important. It was, that would be impossible. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, did it hurt your feelings? No, I loved it. I mean, I laughed and, uh, and then everyone go look at Franken and, and, and (laughs) Reed are talking and laughing. He must be important. (laughs) So it accomplished exactly what I wanted. Do you remember the first time we met and you asked? I sure do. In my office. Yeah. You were talking about running for the Senate. Senate and I thought you were a little crazy to do that. Yeah. I remember you're asking me, what do you do for a living? Yeah. And I was trying to figure out whether you, there are a lot of people who don't know that comedy is written, but I think I asked you about this later and you said, you wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to, like, steal from my campaign, wasn't it? Isn't that? Because you said, like, some guys, you know, don't have a job, and they take from the campaign. Sounds like something I would have said. It sounds like something you would have said is something that was true. <laughs> because, I mean, for example, because I asked you this, because I didn't know if, if you knew whether there were comedy writers. My guess right now, looking at you, is that you didn't know there were comedy writers, or you didn't know that comedy writers... Right? I kind of knew they were there, but I never met one. Right. And you just said, what do you do for That's a living? Right. And I think that was, you just And didn't... then I asked you about some of the things that, that you had said to be funny, that some didn't think were funny, and I yep. said, how are you getting over that? Well, that was an issue with you guys. At first, you were very skeptical, and Chuck was extremely skeptical. And partly because of, I did SNL, and we did dark humor sometimes. Well, I had a joke about, um, I think a bad Hanukkah gift for Anne Frank would have been a drum kit. And so we had tried to prove that people in Minnesota, our pollster, came to this meeting. And we had shown these polls we had done. If you knew the friend told <laughs> this joke, and then it was that joke, and this other, you know, um, would you be more like, less likely? And then if you knew that then learned this and this and this, would, you know, you more or less forgive the, the dark humor. And they would said, yeah, we know really care that much. And so we were kind of trying to show you this to uh, get your support. I think the question was, if you knew that he told a joke about the Holocaust and you looked at me and said, what joke did you tell about the Holocaust? And I just said, show him. (laughs) And it was, I think, a bad Hanukkah gift for Anne Frank would have been a drum set. And you laughed so hard, you could not stop laughing. And you looked at me, and I just shrugged like, I, I yeah, I, we did dark humor. I like dark humor. I think a dark sense of humor is, it's a survival mechanism. Which you say, you can, you can laugh at terrible shit that's happening. But, but you have said, I've heard you say this. Comedians are born. What I've said is I've quoted Dana Carvey as saying there's no reason to be a comedian unless you have to be a comedian. Uh Seinfeld, I believe it was him that did this presentation on how hard it is to be a comedian. And I can still remember one comedian just completed a show that went just fine. But he's sitting out back, actor's entrance, his head in his hands, just so depressed. They said, why? I have to do this again tomorrow. Oh, my God. Well, that guy probably didn't you, make you, it. You didn't feel it was hard to be a comedian? I enjoyed it. Um, if you bombed, I had a comedy team, Franklin Davis. 
by the time we bombed, we, we had killed <laughs> enough times that we, we didn't think that would be. I remember be. when he died, how sad that was for you. Oh, my and God. the presentation that you made. I, I really, you touched you me. You spoke on the floor. You touched me. I was in judiciary, and someone came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, leader is on the phone. And if you hear that, you go to the phone. So I left the uh, hearing room, and you, told, and you said that was a beautiful speech. And then you read from it, which was, it was actually what you read was me quoting Tom. And um, it was, um, yeah. I wish I could do it justice, but it was something like dead people are people too. Yeah, it was really, <laughs> yeah. very moving. Yeah, and that really... You know, it really affected me because we had been partners and like brothers, essentially. And uh, yeah, that was uh, that, that was something you did that 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 meant a lot to me and that that touched me. Um, let's start talking about the job of majority leader and the job of minority leader. When I got there, we were in the majority. Not only that, we had sixty. I was a six. For a short time we did. You sure did until yeah. Ted died. Uh, yeah, Ted died, and then they had the special election. and We should have won, and we lost. Yeah, Scott Brown won, which was, you know, it was kind. It kind of foretold what the Tea Party was. Yeah. And uh, that, that was too bad because it meant that we had to really essentially pass exactly what we had passed for the, for the ACA, which was an improvement. So hard. You, you shepherded the ACA. Uh, the, that's the Affordable Care Act. You had exactly 60 to pass it. We needed 60. So you knew that every one of us had a veto over anything. And Lieberman used it a couple times, right? Yeah. Public option. Yeah, we had that for a while until he changed his mind. That was too bad. So to substitute for that, we were saying you go start getting Medicare at 55, and he nixed that too. Republicans have done everything they can to destroy that. They almost did it until McCain gave the thumbs down. And even though they damaged it. You mean when they tried to repeal and replace? They yes, tried to repeal he, it back in. Before late at night, remember, he walked in and oh. thumbs down, he killed it. They wanted to. Uh, so I remember that. That vote was essential. So we had 60 votes to pass it. But then Speaker Pelosi, the first time she was Speaker, and I worked out this deal. You'll remember this. We got it so that it was now going to be determined because they'd passed it in the House. And we had to pass the exact same bill the House did. And we did it under what is called reconciliation. Okay. Which can be done, and it only takes a simple majority. But Nancy was afraid that we would dump that like we did so much of the House legislation. So I'll remind you what happened. I said, okay, we will pass that without a single change in the legislation. None. Because we change a paragraph, we change a comma, it's no longer law. So she said, always messes with us. I said, okay, what I'll do is I will get every Democratic senator to sign a letter that they will vote to not change anything in the bill that you sent to us. Now, this is before their vote? Oh, of course. Yeah, so this so, is to tell them, you pass this we, thing, we, can we get, will we do We could get more than 50 votes, 51 votes. All yeah. Uh, so everybody signed the letter except Robert Burt. But to his credit, he uh, sent her his own letter. Oh, my So God. we had everybody signed that they wouldn't change anything. So remind you, that was a very, very difficult thing. That bill came over, another reconciliation they can offer unlimited amendments. They can offer 10. They can ask, offer 20. They can ask 10,000. You know, you just have to wear them out. Oh, and they, they, were, they were always looking for amendments 
Oh, that we would vote against. Yeah, remember? That, that was, we, and we voted against everything, remember? It was like, uh, we will not give Viagra to, to sex offenders. To pri- yes, pr- yes uh, pr- who are in prison, yes. Who are in prison. And so, <laughs> and we had to vote against that. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's how we got it passed. Yeah, that was Coburn, I think, who did that. Oh, you, sh- you should have brought that up. One of my favorite Franken stories is your first meeting with Coburn. Do you remember that? It was not my first. It was like my fourth. You want to have breakfast with him? Yes. This is... This is, uh, this is so funny. Okay. So Coburn was humorless, wouldn't you say? I would say no, but go ahead. Okay. Almost humorless. At least he didn't get... Oh, you said humorless. Yeah. Oh, we damn sure. That's right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and so like the he was on, on judiciary uh, when I got there. And the first three interactions we had were just did not go well. And so I went up to him and I, uh, I said, Tom, can I take you to lunch? And he said, well, take me to breakfast. And I said, okay. And then we met for breakfast a couple days later, 8 a.m. In, in the Senate dining room. And we sat down and I said, uh, Tom, you know, let's just have fun. And he said, all right, well, fun. And I said, uh, you know, we can talk about anything. We can talk about... Uh, you know, our families, uh, we can talk about our careers before we got here because he was an OBGYN. He was a doctor. And he, he said, okay, okay. I said, okay, career. Um, let me ask you something. Um, to be a doctor in Oklahoma, do you have to have any formal education? And he goes, yes, you've got to go to medical school. (laughs) And he was livid. And I just said to him, no, 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 that was a joke. You see, and that's what I did. I was a comedian and I I did jokes. He goes, oh, okay. And then we had a good time after that. I jollied him up a little bit. And I think I, he learned for the first time what a joke was and what the proper reaction is, which is to laugh. It's a good joke. But <laughs> anyway, I, I remembered that. Yeah, that was, uh, that, that was, uh, there wasn't a lot of other comedy <laughs> going on around the, around the place. Obviously, Mitch McConnell resisted the ACA, the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. And one of the things about that is that killed us. That killed us in in ten. We lost the house, right? Yeah. In ten, and it was ACA. That's the number one issue. And 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 they were lying a lot about the ACA. They were, you know, yeah. Grassley was saying we're gonna they're gonna pull the plug on on Grandma. I I took him aside and said, Chuck, we're we're not gonna kill Grandma. We're gonna kill Great Grandma. <laughs> And he knew it was a joke. At least he, he had a pretty good sense of humor. So, um, yeah, he was really funny. He's kind of plays himself, doesn't he? Yeah. He kind of plays a character named Chuck Grassley who was kind of, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm just, oh, you know, hi, how you doing? That kind of thing. And Heidi Heidkamp and I called him, the three of us were the Oh Yeah Caucus. What's that? Oh, yeah. but mitch before obama took office but after he was elected met with the republican caucus and said we're just going to oppose everything right that's right they didn't want him reelected and they didn't want him reelected so that so so mitch said, we're just going to oppose everything. We're and not going to let them have success. And they did. When he took office, we were losing 800,000 jobs a month. Yep. And yet, Mitch would not allow Republicans to vote for a stimulus package. And remember, we didn't have 60 votes then. We right. had 58 votes. Right. Because I wasn't there and, and Arlen Collins, was a Republican. And Collins... Snow and Spectre were suspects that would vote with us. They would not do it because each of them refused to be the 60th vote. So we had to get all three of them, and we did. Oh, I we see. Got I Collins, see. We got Snow, 
and we got Spectre. That was wonderful. What they did was patriotic. The stimulus bill was a good bill, but we originally started it. It would have been a wonderful bill. It would have been more jobs and all, but it were, hey, listen, we can't complain. We got what we got. Yes. What we had to do was add more tax breaks and take away more, you know, spending on infrastructure and, you know, the spend side. By the way, somebody said this the other day. If, if you want the deficit contained, you want a Democratic president. So it's always been all you have to. I had a professor from University of Nevada. His name was Elliot. He came in and uh, made a presentation to my leadership team. And he had graphs showing that in times of economic distress, the country only does well with Democrats. Republicans are just the opposite. This has gone to like an extreme because uh, Clinton gave W a surplus, right? He, he gave... He gave I mean, a surplus of $8 trillion over 10 years. Trillion, not billion. Okay? And that was wasted on the war in Iraq and the tax cuts when they got it. And, and remember, Greenspan said, we have to raise taxes because we're in danger of paying off uh, the, debt. The, the national debt. Yeah, you, and then what do we do? Do you realize what, <laughs> do you realize what, Clinton, do you realize what Clinton did? It's unbelievable. Paid down the debt. And he did so uh, in a time that wasn't that easy. I mean, Clinton will go down as one of America's great presidents. He certainly, in terms of economically, that was in stark contrast to um, his predecessors, uh, uh, Reagan and H.W. But H.W. just caught a real bad break. And, and remember, he said, read my lips, no new taxes. And then he raised taxes. and. That's it, it, but remember he was at ninety one percent favorability after the, the Iraq War, that Iraq War because Bush won. Bush won because he did this thing. He made this decision because we got them out of Kuwait, and then he made this big decision, which was let's not invade Iraq. Remember that? No, all they did is chase some of the Iraqis out of Kuwait and. Shot a few of them on the road, but he didn't invade. Yeah. He said, why why do that? And Cheney said, don't do it. So, but the son, listen, if you're comparing how bad presidents were, so far, a Trump as an individual, as a person, you know, no one holds a candle to him on what an awful person he is. I've said to a number of people that President Bush number two and I, had some differences, and we expressed them. But he was always a patriot. I didn't agree with a lot of the things he did, especially the invasion of Iraq. But he was not anyone who was immoral. He was not amoral like the guy that's present today. He was just a guy trying to do his best, and I disagreed with him, and so did a lot of the senators and American people. But uh, that's the way it is. He's just it's, It was uh, such a shame. I would... Yeah, I wish you were there now compared to this man we have as president. A lot of people say that, but what I remind them is that he left Obama with the worst economy since the Great Depression, and he and Cheney and the whole rest of them lied about weapons of mass destruction. How people ask me was the worst decision I ever made in the Senate. That's easy for me to answer. It was voting for the Iraq war because I was lied to. It took me about a month, maybe three weeks, before I decided I had been misled. So I came out as one of the biggest opponents of that war in the Senate. It's the worst foreign policy decision in the history of this country. Mm, there's some Vietnam. No, no, no. Keep this in mind. Vietnam was horrible. I agree with that. But look what happened the invasion of Iraq. Uh, the whole Middle East destabilized. No one really knows how many Iraqis have been killed, but some say as many as three, 400,000. Right. And the whole area is destabilized. We have mass migration that would have never happened otherwise. No, it's, uh, it's, it's, it was worse than Vietnam. 
Well, there are certain ways to say that. We lost 50,000 lives, Americans, in Vietnam. At least a million of the Vietnamese were killed. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the weird thing is you go to Vietnam and they love Americans. Yeah. Well, you know, that, but it's not just America. I know Iran is a renegade. They're doing a lot of bad things. But the people of that country of 60, 70 million people, the people love the United States. The people, not, not the Ayatollah and all those people. Yeah, but uh, yeah, the supreme leader That's right. is the problem. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. What I want to get at here is Mitch. In terms of, I mean, you two dealt with each other all the time. Long time. Okay. So... We were hips together. We were leaders together. Yeah. I believe that as much as Trump, he is a guy who has violated the norms of the, the government, of the let, Senate. Let me tell you how I feel about it. That's what I want to hear. I wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times about a month ago where I said the Senate is basically dysfunctional. The filibuster is gone anyway. Not a question if question when. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is this. The Senate is, today is not functioning under Senator McConnell's leadership. The Senate is doing nothing other than approving judges. They don't. People aren't allowed to offer amendments. There are no votes on anything, only things by unanimous consent. And the sad part about it is that it has ruined the Senate. The Senate is not going to be as it was in the near future. In fact, it's not going to be that way for a, never going to return to what it used to be for a long, long time. Now, the reason for the because, filibuster was so that we would pass yes, legislation that was bipartisan, that had bipartisan right, right support. Out. And now it's used to kill everything. And the Senate does not function. That's because we are so divided. Uh, violating norms. I mean, the worst one was not having hearings for Merrick Garland. What the hell was that? He could do it, right? He could do it. That was all it was. The reason he could that the Senate it. worked so well for such a long period of time is that there was collegiality. People got along with each other. Uh, there was no tribalism. And McConnell changed all that. He changed everything. When he did what he did to this fine man that Orrin Hatch said finest person in America to serve on the Supreme Court is Merrick Garland. Yep. And when his name was brought up, Hatch voted against him. Right. And it was interesting because I, I don't want to go into the Biden rule. There was no Biden rule. But Biden did say, unless we're consulted. Yep. And Hatch did talk to, did consult. And Merrick Garland was, is considered... He's a progressive, but he is considered a judge who would find consensus in the court. Very true. And that's what you want. And the reason he wouldn't allow a hearing... Because he'd look too good. Exactly. 
because people would see Merrick Garland and they go, if we could just get nine of those, I'd feel really, really, really good about yeah, the Supreme Court. Very true. I, I'm so pissed at him. Uh, and you must have been too. What was that relationship like? What's the relationship? You got to tell me that. You know, we got along. He was always very uh, nonverbal. He didn't talk much, even to me. Okay. He didn't want to do meetings. I wanted to meet with him every week, like leaders used to do, you know. Democratic leader would meet the Republican leader and switch offices. We'd change back and forth. But he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to have a joint caucus. The only joint caucus we had, maybe you'll remember that. Do you remember the caucus that he agreed to have when John McCain talked about his war experiences in Vietnam? Oh, yeah. It was very emotional. Very emotional. Well, that was a lunch, and we had yep. a joint luncheon. Yep. But you persuaded McCain. He had never done this. He had he never he told. He would do it. He said, told me he would do it. Yeah. McCain and I had a great relationship. We were elected to the House together in 82, elected to the Senate together in 86. His seniority was one ahead of mine because we had the same experience in Congress, but the state of Arizona had more people than Nevada, so he got the uh, heads up on seniority. Oh, he got seniority because of, you know, um, I remember after that lunch, um, and he did. He told us about his five and a half years in the Hanoi Hilton. How he's tortured and he always felt bad because he confessed to certain things that were not true. Yeah, he was broken yeah. because of torture. I mean, you know. And so when we came to the floor for votes later that day, later in the about five, I went up to him and I said, well, that was great today. Um, how much of that was true? <laughs> and he left. When he left for Arizona, after he put the thumbs down, I was worried I wasn't going to see him again. I thought that yep. might be the last time. So I went up to him and I said, I'm going to send you uh, some good news, bad news jokes, like every once in a while. He said, okay. So I would send him things like, uh, the good news is your mom is 105 years old and sharp as a tack. The bad news is you have brain cancer. <laughs> and he did come back and he loved these things. And do you remember when Ron Johnson, I don't know if you remember this, but Ron Johnson, after he had put the thumbs down on that, yeah. Ron Johnson during that break said, uh, well, the only reason he put his thumbs down is he's confused by his brain cancer. Oh, dear. Yeah. So I wrote John... Uh, the bad news is that you have brain cancer. The good news is that Ron Johnson's ass cancer moved to his mouth. John did come back. We did get to see him again. And he just got people around. He said, Al earned every cent he's ever gotten at Saturday Night Live. Isn't that great? But he was basically saying, I didn't deserve the money I was getting at the Senate. He was he was making a joke because I I was a, I think he thought I was a good senator. I think I don't know of anyone that did now down deep in their heart. I wish my one regret. I have lots of regrets, but one regret is I wasn't there when this mess took place that embarrassed, humiliated, and hurt you unnecessarily. Should have been that should have been referred to the ethics committee. What all turned out okay, but that's water under the bridge. But that's how I feel about it, and I've said so publicly. I'm saying this again today, and you've said it to me many times, and I really appreciate that. Um, so, Mitch, you say you got along. Uh, were there times you didn't get along? Let's put it that way. Well, he had a different uh, personality than I. Uh, he wears everything very close to his vest, and uh, so we. Didn't have any philosophical discussions. It was just uh, business that we had to do. Hmm. It would seem that two leaders with that responsibility would respect each other. Well, I'm sure he and, respected me. I respected him. Well, I meant respect each other enough to, to have a relationship that 
you know, evolves so that you maybe come to some kind of understanding about what the body should be and how we can work together. Or just how it was. Um, yeah, well. It's just, that's we had a clash of personalities. There was no uh, yelling and screaming at each other. It just, I learned quickly that's how it was going to be. And certain things you just drop it and go on and do your best in spite of what you don't agree with. And uh, you both were masters of procedure, right? Yeah, I understood the rules pretty well. I had personal tutor in Robert Bird. He used to call me to his office all the time, and we would talk. I had, even though he had gotten old, he was still very sharp when I visited with him. He was a big help to me. And he had been majority leader, of course, and he probably revered the Senate as much oh, yes, as anyone. He did revere the Senate. Yep. Let's talk about when we went to 50 on federal judges, uh, 51. And why, why did I change the rule? You want me to tell you? I, I think I, I know, but go, I'll, I'll hear I, from I you. Want, I want your listeners to understand this mm -hmm. coming from me. Obama had been elected president by an overwhelming majority, he was very popular. There may have been presidents in the past that are as popular as he, maybe Roosevelt. I don't know who, but at least he was extremely popular. Reagan won by yes. his, yeah. So during his first Congress, when he was president, he was facing McConnell, who said they're going to oppose everything he tried to do. So that being the case, we had facing us, Wall Street had collapsed. We needed to do something there. We had health care that was really something that Obama told me I'd call him often. We'd, Bill had been introduced, and committees had worked on it for a long, long time. I said, I, I you know, Mr. President, I'm not sure I can get this done. He said, you've got to get it done. He said... I would rather not be reelected than not do the health care bill. Told me that many times. So that was a real task to get the health care bill passed. Yeah. And, and uh, we had, here's what we had. We had over 100 judges who they wouldn't give us a vote on. We had the D.C. Circuit, the second most important court in the country, there were four or five vacancies there, mm -hmm. and they said they don't have anything to do anyway. They could not attack organized labor head on. So what they did, they tried to cripple them by not allowing us to have a quorum for the NLRB. NLRB. So National Labor Relations I Board. I figured, um, well, we're getting, the only way I can get that done is I've changed the rules. And uh, now... It's not the first time the rules have been changed. It's been changed lots of times. Not only that, but we had a joint meeting in the old Senate chamber uh, to discuss this. Yeah. And people may remember that during the W. Bush administration, there's a thing called the Gang of 14. Yeah. And what had happened is, is some Republicans and Democrats got together and said, we will vote or not vote people through. We won't vote extreme people through. We'll stop them, but we will allow nominees through. And there's enough of us that we can stop what we want or let through what we want. And there was a, a, an understanding there. And that's what we were really asking them for. And Mitch refused. Yeah, we just wanted a continuation of the deal we'd made. Yeah. And that was led by Pryor and McCain, the King of 14. It's really sad what's happened now because they took away the blue slip. The blue slip is if you're a senator and the president nominates someone who is going to represent your state in a circuit court or in a district court, you have a veto. 
that the veto is not turning in your blue slip. And this has been recognized for about 100 years. And boy, did they use that during Obama. That's for sure. And then as soon as, uh, not right at the outset, but pretty soon, six months in or four months in, they took away the blue slip. What that meant was, is that you just had extreme right-wing judge, extreme right-wing judge, extreme right-wing judge. When you had the blue slip, you negotiated. And then you got moderate judges. And you had faith in the federal courts. And Al, it worked to the benefit of the Republicans also. It wasn't a one-way street. It, wor- it worked to everybody's benefit. Now, if having eliminated the blue slip, the federal judiciary is going to be either an extreme right-winger or a, you know, when we get in, we're going to put in judges that are on the other extreme. And people are not going to trust federal courts. Which was the epitome of a legal system. It was worked so well for so long. They're appointed for life. They have lifetime tenure. But you know, the problem is this. And I want your listeners to understand from my perspective. The Senate is going to be just another House of Representatives because there's no reason that they won't be just like the House. Now, is that the end of the world? No. But it sure changes things. So the House is going to be just like the Senate and vice versa. But that's not the end of the world. Congress could still work. You have six-year terms in the Senate. You have, it'll still be a bicameral legislature. So it would still work, but just not as well as it has in the past. And so you're for eliminating the filibuster. It's gone. Anyway, what do you mean? It's gone now. All they're doing are judges. Everything that is happens in the Senate today, if you want to pass something, 60 votes. That isn't the way it should be. But that's the way it is. So it's gone. The filibuster's gone. That's why I wrote that op-ed for the Times. So, so wait a minute. Let me, let me, let me get my, my brain around it. What you're saying is now you need 60 votes to get anything done, and you're not going to get anything done because we're, the, we're, so, divi- right we're so tribal. Is that what you're saying? That's it. Okay. So you're saying we might as well get rid of the filibuster so at least somebody can pass something. And it, it, Yes, and, and what it means is that if you have a Democratic president and Democratic Senate, Democratic House, things are going to be like the British Parliament. But if you have a Republican president, and Democratic Senate, and vice versa, it won't work as well, but it can work. Be up to the... Well, you can have a Republican president, a Republican House, and a Republican Senate, which we had for two years with with Trump. And this is the thing about the Affordable Care Act, is that the American people, once they had that, once they had everything, they had both houses and and the presidency, is they had promised for seven and a half years to repeal and replace. And so... I and the American people, I think, were saying, okay, let's see what you got. What have you been doing for the last seven and a half years? What have you come up with that will ensure as many people or more at the same cost or less provide as good a care or better to replace Obamacare? And what they came up with, what the Republicans, the various things that they came up with did not protect people with pre-existing conditions. Among other things. It covered less people. They were going to cut Medicaid, so Medicaid expansion was gone, and people love Medicaid expansion. You know the last three states, by referendum to pass Medicaid expansion, were Idaho, Nebraska, and Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah. G-U-S. So it is incredibly popular, and that was in 18. So in 17, people start going like, wait a minute. Now I know what's in the ACA. And now I know what's in the Affordable Care Act because Republicans showed them that they were going to take all that away or most of it away. And so the uh, approval rating of the ACA of Obamacare shot up. And that's why we won 40 seats in 18. And that's why we should be emphasizing that Trump has doubled down. He wants to take it away. He's joined that lawsuit. 
And so we, we should be campaigning on that. And there is some campaigning going. The major issues facing America today is number one, climate, changing climate. Number two, health care. Obamacare is still around, but the prices have gone up and it's just... Yeah, we need to address, we need to Im- improve it. But boy, oh boy, they showed their, uh, their stripes in 17. Let's talk about Trump for just a second because, you know, something's happened in the last few days. I've been thinking that Mueller must be pissed because he worked for over two years and produced a 450-page report that had, you know, 10 actionable... Indicting. ...obstruction of justice. But because it was 452-page or whatever it was, no one read it. I've got a copy over here. Do you want one? I'll give it to you. I have read it. Oh, okay. When I said no one read it, I meant no one who wasn't kind of in this business. Um, but now, <laughs> now he, he does it again. But this time he's president of the United States and he shakes down the leader of a foreign country to dig up dirt, whether it's real or not on political opponents. So now he's actually, as president of the United States, on the phone, which is being transcribed <laughs> and recorded and transcribed. Twelve people are listening. Yes. Americans. Right. And he's doing it because he, what? He doesn't think he can possibly get caught, right? Or, yeah, or That's true. And the question now is, is he right? I mean, are we? Is but he, he going? But he has been caught. He has been caught. He has been yes. caught. The whistleblower did a good, good job. They stalled it as long as they could, but they couldn't any longer. They meaning the, the White House administration. And Barr, can you believe? I, I really wish I had been there for the Barr hearings when he came to the Senate, because what he did, he just lied. He lied to the American people when he characterized her. He's chief law enforcement officer of our country. Is prevaricator. Prevaricator is a uh, is a good word, I guess, because it has a little class to the Franken podcast. (laughs) Well, it needs it. I mean, there's no question about that. And I think uh, you've done exactly that. So uh, we'll wrap up there on that note. It's been uh, a, a good one for a change, a good podcast for a change. Al, let me tell you, as we, as we uh, terminate this, I served with lots and lots of different senators in my 34 years in Congress. And there's no one that I left having more respect for than you. I think you were a tremendous senator extremely smart, and only funny when you wanted to be, which wasn't all the time. And people who think because you're funny, you're not smart, uh, only need to spend a little a day or two in the Senate because you prove that every day that you are very smart. I don't think that was an issue with anyone except Diane. <laughs> I don't think that and she just, uh, you know, she... Look, hey, hey, listen, she, listen, she, listen, she was in, listen, head of the intelligence just, agency. Just take, she, it, just take a compliment. Accept it, okay? Okay, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. Well, there you have it. Uh, our talk with uh, Peter Reed, uh, a man... Ah, it just sounds like we're just slobbering all over each other, but um, uh, Harry, I uh, love you, man. Thank you, well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.
Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcast. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.